If you have been a part of Lakeside for any length of time, then you know that either on the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the new year, I give a special message entitled State of the Church Address. And the purpose of this message is twofold. Number one is to look back and to share with you some of the significant highlights and events that have taken place during the past year at Lakeside. The other purpose is to look ahead, sharing with you what area or areas of our church's life that uh, I think need addressing and improving in the upcoming year. But this year I'm going to do things a little differently than I normally do. While I'm still going to give you a brief report on some of the highlights that took place at our church this past year, however, when it comes to looking ahead as to what I'd like to see at Lakeside in this new year, this upcoming year, I really don't have any burden on my heart to share with you. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't believe that we have any areas of ministry that need improving. That's not the case. We always do, every year, every day. It'll never stop. But my honest admission to you is that with the passing away of my granddaughter in September, my focus hasn't been really on what Lakeside needs, but rather it's been on enduring this season of great grief. And what has helped me more than anything else as I grieve the death of Lila is to think about heaven and the immeasurable joy that she is experiencing right now in glory. Adding to this in the providence of God, our Friday morning men's study has been going through Randy Alcorn's excellent book, on heaven. So the subject of heaven has been on my mind, on my heart, a great deal. Therefore, it only seems reasonable to assume that if the Lord has put heaven on my heart, then this is what he wants me to share with you as a church family. So starting this morning, I'm going to take a little break from our study in Luke's gospel to begin a brief series of messages on heaven. The series won't be exhaustive, but will highlight some of the main questions people have about heaven, and then answer those questions from Scripture. But let me first give you some information concerning what took place at our church in the year 2022. In terms of statistics, there were five births and two adoptions finalized. There were eight children publicly dedicated to the Lord. We received 38 new people into membership with two returning members, and 23 individuals publicly confessed their faith in Christ in the waters of baptism. One very positive statistic is that our youth group is averaging about 75 students per week and growing, with a recent week having 99 students in attendance. Another positive for our church is that enrollment at Lakeside Christian School is up to 280 students who, as part of their education, are exposed to the gospel every single day. And one very special statistic is that thanks to your generosity as a congregation, our church was able to distribute, get this, close to $122,000 from our benevolent fund to assist those in our church family with financial needs. On a sad note, six individuals in our church passed away this year, while an astounding 34 loved ones related to our church family also passed away. In addition, there were a number of special events that took place at Lakeside. We had another fun Lakeside's Got Talent night, where once again I embarrassed myself and planned to do it even more this next year. <laughs> Come out for that. 
And the ladies of our church also enjoyed another great women's one-to-one game night. We also had a very special Sunday in September with Answers in Genesis, being privileged to hear Bible teachers and creation scientists Dr. Terry Mortensen and Dr. Ken Ham. In addition, our men again enjoyed their annual camping and river trip, and we had a terrific men's conference with 175 in attendance who were blessed to hear great teaching from Ben Kreloff and H.B. Charles. Also, numerous Bible studies continue to take place in and around our church, and it may encourage you to know that Insight for Women, our weekly ladies Bible study, now in its 35th year, is averaging about 105 women between Wednesday night and Thursday morning. But perhaps the biggest and most notable highlight of the year was that our church's building renovation was completed and we now have a beautiful new lobby, patio, cry room, and additional bathrooms. And in addition to all that has happened at our church this year, God has continued, continued to bless Lakeside through the many ongoing ministries and outreaches, some organized, some just people spontaneously doing it that are just too numerous to to name right now. So I would say as a church family, be encouraged because God is at work in our church, both blessing Lakeside and using Lakeside to bless others for his glory. But now having told you about these past blessings, as I said earlier, I'm going to deviate from what I normally do in the state of the church address to instead speak about heaven, a subject, as I said, that's been very dear and near to my heart for the last few months, but surprisingly, a subject few Christians know much about, since we tend to hear very little about heaven in church. Now, it's not to say that we don't ever hear about heaven. We certainly do. In fact, we mention heaven a lot in church, but that's about as far as it goes. We just mention heaven only in passing as our future home. Seldom, though, do we hear anything of real biblical substance about heaven, addressing questions that almost everybody has, like, what's heaven like? Is heaven a real place, or is it just a a state of mind? What will we be doing in heaven? Will we know each other in heaven? Will we still be married in heaven? But our lack of understanding about heaven is so unnecessary, folks, It really is, because the Bible mentions heaven a great deal. You may not realize this, but the Bible mentions heaven about 600 times. Sadly, though, the only thing most Christians know about heaven is that it's the place they're going to go to when they die, but that's about it. That's usually as far as it goes. And as a result of this prevailing ignorance about what the Bible says concerning heaven, we've allowed some rather unappealing and unbiblical views of heaven to rob us of the joy, the eagerness, the anticipation of going there. For example, one erroneous view is that the main thing that we're going to do in heaven is just sit around on a cloud all day, meditating while plucking the strings of a harp. Another false view of heaven is that it's a land of shadows, a land of mist, a place where everything is just bland and boring and bleak. Also, some have incorrectly said that the music that one can expect to hear in heaven will be dull, heavy, and monotonously repetitious. Mark Twain, who was certainly no authority on the Bible or a theologian, said this about the music in heaven. And I quote, 
You said it goes on all day long and every day during a stretch of 12 hours. The singing is of hymns alone. Nay, it is of one hymn alone. The words are always the same. In number, they're only about a dozen. There's no rhyme and no poetry. Yuck. That's what I say. Yuck. That sounds like a teenager's worst nightmare. It's certainly not what the Bible says about heaven. Another rather popular but wrong view of heaven is that the Apostle Peter guards the entrance to heaven. Where? At the pearly gates. And finally, there's the false and rather silly notion that we all become angels in heaven with halos and wings. Now, folks, listen, no one wants to go to a place where we do nothing but meditate, listen to music with no tune, sit around with wings and halos plucking on a harp and a dull and bleak lamb with no color. Frankly, that sounds more like hell than like heaven. But the good news is that none of these views about heaven are true. None of them. They are all the inventions of men's foolish imaginations. So, if none of these views are true, then you might wonder, well, how do people come up with such fanciful speculations? Where do they get this from? Well, according to one expert who pays a great deal of attention to religious trends in our culture, he said this, he said, they're cutting and pasting religious views from a variety of different sources, television, movies, and conversations with their friends. So, listen, all of these views that I've mentioned to you, and there are more, they're just a hodgepodge of bad theology that have no biblical basis whatsoever. But what we do know for certain is that behind these false views of heaven is none other than Satan. Because being the father of lies, he lies about heaven, as he does about everything else. You see, having been kicked out of heaven, as the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14, an evil and embittered devil now spreads lies about heaven. And why does he do this? Well, being God's enemy and therefore our enemy, he does this for the purpose of robbing us of any joy and eagerness of going to heaven, as well as weakening our evangelistic resolve, our efforts to tell others about how to go to heaven. Listen, if any of these erroneous views of heaven had even an ounce of truth to them, then who'd want to go there? And why would we be concerned about telling someone else how to go to heaven? But that's exactly how the devil wants you to feel about heaven. He wants you to be disinterested in going there, both for yourself and for those who need to hear the gospel from you. However, by contrast, though, the scripture tells us that those individuals in biblical times, those to whom God revealed truths about heaven, they were thrilled with what they were told. And therefore, they were excited about heaven and they looked forward to going there. For example, the Apostle Paul stated in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, he said this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I don't know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. 
Now notice what Paul said about heaven. He said, going to heaven after you die, he said it's gain. Gain. He said it's being with Christ. He said it's very much better than living here and now on earth. In addition, Paul said these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Paul says that heaven is so fantastic that whatever suffering you've experienced in this lifetime, it can't even be compared to what awaits you in glory. The way we might put it today in the sports world, it's not even in the same league. And then we have the testimony of numerous Old Testament men and women of faith, people we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, who said that even though they lived their lives out on the earth, they longed, they said, for a better country, a better country, namely heaven. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. One, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Now the city that he has prepared for them, that's the capital city of heaven. It's called in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, in contrast to today's Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And according to Revelation chapter 21 verse 2, this city, the new Jerusalem, is so brilliant, it's so gorgeous that it is compared to a beautiful bride adorned for her husband on her wedding day. So, those who know the truth about heaven, they eagerly anticipate going there. They long for heaven. They consider it gain to go there. And they're excited about telling others how to go to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that's exactly how you'll feel when we finish this series. That you'll be excited about heaven. That you'll have joy and anticipation in going there. And so since there are a number of questions that Christians tend to have about heaven, about glory, what I would like to do in this series is to ask and then answer several of those questions, with the first one now being the most basic of them all. This is where you have to start, what is heaven? What is heaven? What does that mean? As I stated earlier, the Bible mentions the word heaven about 600 times And foundational to our understanding of heaven is knowing what the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated in the Bible, heaven, mean. Well, to begin with, the Old Testament Hebrew word for heaven literally means the heights. That's the word, the heights. While the New Testament Greek word for heaven means that which is raised up. So the basic thought of the term heaven in both languages is essentially the the same. That which is above. Meaning what? Meaning that heaven is above man, heaven is above the earth. However, in addition to knowing what the Hebrew and Greek words heaven mean, it's also important to understand that when we speak of heaven, we need to make a distinction. We need to distinguish which heaven we are referring to. And that's because the Bible actually refers to three 
heavens. With the first heaven being what we would call the atmosphere around the earth. In other words, this is the air we breathe. This is the heaven of the clouds, the heaven where birds fly. So when the Bible speaks of the rain or the snow coming down from heaven, this is the heaven it's referring to. The first heaven, the atmosphere. Second heaven is the sphere where the sun, the moon, the stars, and planets exist. This is that heaven where God told Abraham to go out of his tent, look up, and count the stars if he was able to do so because his descendants would be numerous like the stars. That's the second heaven where the stars, the moon, the sun, planets are. Now the third heaven and the one that is the focus of our study is the place where God dwells, the place where angels dwell, the place where all believers in Christ will eventually dwell. And it's here in this third heaven where the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was caught up to the third heaven and he was given revelation by God that he was forbidden to repeat. So we don't know, Paul never repeated it. But he speaks of the third heaven. Now the fact that God dwells in this third heaven and that angels dwell there and that Paul was briefly caught up to be there, what does that reveal? Well, it reveals that heaven is a place with a real location. It's not merely a state of mind. In fact, it's not a state of mind. It's a real place. In fact, Jesus made it very clear that heaven is a tangible place with a physical location. Notice what he said in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, notice, think about these words. Because with these words, our Lord speaks clearly of heaven as a real place. He talks about dwelling places. You could translate it rooms. Or in our Modern world, we would put it today as apartments. Apartments in the Father's very large house. This is the place where Jesus is right now and where believers will someday be when we are with him. And that, my friends, will be the greatest experience of your life. To actually be with Jesus physically. To see him. To talk with him face-to-face, to bask in the glory of his presence. And that's why death for a believer is gain. But there's more, because not only because you'll be with Jesus, though obviously that will be the greatest gain, but also, note this, because you will be dwelling in the greatest place in the entire universe. And to show you just how great heaven will be, I'm going to bring up a second question about heaven. Namely, what will life be like in heaven? Now, this is where it gets very interesting and perhaps a bit surprising because most Christians really don't know what to expect about their future life in heaven. And when they learn the truth, it is often shocking, but shocking in a great way. So prepare to be shocked. You see, according to Scripture, heaven, which as we've already mentioned, is above us. 
it's going to, note this, watch this, come down to reside on the earth. Heaven is going to come down to reside on the earth. And the scripture that tells us this is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2. Here's what we read. I read it earlier, but now I've got your attention. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now what we read here is that the apostle John, at the end of the book of Revelation, he's given a vision, a vision of what will take place immediately following Christ's 1,000-year kingdom on earth, known as the Millennial Kingdom. And in his vision, John sees a new heaven and a new earth that will replace the old heaven and the old earth. So, if that's the case, and it is, because that's what this verse tells us, then it is only reasonable for us at this point to ask this question, well, what happened to the old heaven and the old earth? If there's a new one, what happened to the old one? Well, if you look back at Revelation 20, verse 11, and even though I know they put it on the screen, it'd be good for you to mark this down. Good for you to take notes because you're probably not going to remember this. So if you look back at Revelation 20, verse 11, you'll see what happened. John said, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. At the time of the great white throne judgment. What's that? That is the final judgment of God in which he will, through Christ, sentence all unbelievers to eternal hell. We read here that heaven and earth at that time fled away, meaning that they will be destroyed and they'll be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this doesn't mean that the old created world will be annihilated out of existence but rather that it will be completely transformed by God cleansing it with fire. And the reason I say this is because what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us this. 2 Peter 3, 6 through 7, it tells us what happened at the time of Noah's flood and what will happen in the future when there's judgment again. Here's what Peter tells us. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 6. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then we read just a few verses later in verses 10 through 13, these words. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, what we learn, folks, from these verses is that just as the flood, just as the flood caused the earth to be completely rearranged by 
water. It didn't destroy in the sense that annihilate the planet, just rearranged it. So fire will change the heavens and the earth. That's the analogy. That's the comparison. In other words, the present heavens and earth, meaning the entire universe, will burst into purifying flames at the end of the millennial kingdom. The great white throne judgment takes place then. And out of those flames will emerge a wonderful new world. A world in which only righteousness dwells so that it will never again be tainted by sin. But interestingly, if you notice, one significant change from the old earth to the new earth is that as John reveals in verse 1, there'll no longer, he says, be any sea. What he means by that is not that there won't be water on the planet, but there'll no longer be any oceans. Now, that's very different from the earth that we now live on because at present, about 70% of the earth's surface is covered by water. Now, why there won't be any sea or any ocean on the new earth, we just have not been told. It's not been clearly revealed to us. However, one plausible explanation that has been suggested has to do with fear being eliminated in heaven. Remember, when I'm saying heaven now, I'm talking about heaven comes down to earth. You see, in ancient times, seas or oceans were a somewhat negative thing since they were dangerous and they were used to establishing boundaries. They were used to establish boundaries between nations, between peoples. They separated peoples. In other words, they created fear and they separated individuals. So the fact that in the new earth there will not be any sea may very well simply mean that there won't be any more fear and hostility between people. Also, no more ocean will mean more land to be inhabited by people, which was uninhabitable as long as the seas covered the old earth with 70%. But regardless of the reason for no more seas, what we know for sure is that heaven is going to come down to earth so that the capital city of heaven called the New Jerusalem will permanently reside on this planet, on earth, as John states in verse 2. And he tells us that the new Jerusalem is a city of exquisite beauty. A city that looks as beautiful as a bride looks on her wedding day. And listen, John isn't simply referring to the physical beauty of this city, though that certainly is part of it, but also to its beautiful internal character, since all of its residents will be fully sanctified, sinless believers. Now, at this point, I want to pause and I want to consider some of the implications of heaven coming to earth because this truth tells us a great deal about what life will be like for us in heaven. You may not realize it at this point, but you will in a few moments. In his monumental book on heaven, which I mentioned earlier, Randy Alcorn, if you don't have this, you should get it and read it. It's wonderful. Randy Alcorn writes the following concerning what we can expect to find in heaven on earth. He writes, I heard a pastor say on the radio, there's nothing in our present experience that can suggest to us what heaven is like. But if the eternal heaven will be a new earth, doesn't that suggest that the current earth must be bursting with clues about what heaven will be like? Scripture gives us images full of hints and implications about heaven. Put them together and these jigsaw pieces form a beautiful picture. 
For example, we're told that heaven is a city. He mentions Hebrews 11, Hebrews 13. When we hear the word city, we shouldn't scratch our heads and think, I wonder what that means. We understand cities. Cities have buildings, culture, art, music, athletics, goods and services, events of all kinds. And of course, cities have people engaged in activities, gathering conversations and work. Heaven is also described as a country. Once again, Hebrews 11. We know about countries. They have territories, rulers, national interests, pride in their identity, and citizens who are both diverse and unified. If we can't imagine our present earth without rivers, mountains, trees, and flowers, then why would we try to imagine the new earth without these features? We wouldn't expect a non-earth to have mountains and rivers, but God doesn't promise us a non-earth. He promises us a new earth. If the word earth in this phrase means anything, it means that we can expect to find earthly things there, including atmosphere, mountains, water, trees, people, houses, even cities, buildings, and streets. And then in parentheses, he says, these familiar features are specifically mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. He continues, the problem is not that the Bible doesn't tell us much about heaven. It's that we don't pay attention to what it tells us. Some of the best portrayals I've seen of the eternal heaven are in children's books. Why? Because they depict earthly scenes with animals and people playing in joyful activities. The book for adults, on the other hand, often try to be philosophical, profound, ethereal, and otherworldly. But that kind of heaven is precisely what the Bible doesn't portray as the place where we'll live forever. Now, folks, think about the implications of what we have just read. If the new earth resembles the old earth, except without sin, so that there'll be this wonderful continuity and familiarity with what we experienced on the old earth, and consider, just consider all of the joys that we can look forward to in heaven. Because in many ways, it will feel just like coming home. For example... We can look forward to spending time with loved ones and friends, having conversations with them, eating meals with them, playing games with them, traveling with them, participating in sports with them, enjoying the arts, including music with them. Listen, don't make the mistake of over-spiritualizing heaven so that you consider it totally unearthly and otherworldly. Because if you do that, you will be denying the truth that God says that heaven will be a continuation of life on earth except without sin so that the things that now make life on earth so rich and so pleasant and so enjoyable are the types of things that will make life rich and pleasant and enjoyable in glory. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with Johnny Erickson Tata, but some may not know about her. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Johnny. Many years ago, when she was 17 years old, Johnny Erickson Tata was in a terrible accident. She became a quadriplegic, meaning that all four of her limbs were paralyzed. But Johnny is a remarkable Christian woman who has used her condition for over 50 years to inspire and encourage thousands upon thousands of disabled people all over the world. Well, a number of years ago, Johnny wrote a book on heaven. And in this book, she writes about what she plans to do in heaven with her friends since she recognizes that heaven will be a continuation of life 
on earth, only it will be without sin and completely righteous. Here's what she said. Once you know it is a long quote, but it is well worth hearing. Here's what Johnny Erickson Tata said. I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. It's easy for me to be joyful in hope, as it says in Romans 12.12, and that's exactly what I've been doing for the past 50-odd years. My assurance of heaven is so alive that I've been making dates with friends to do all sorts of fun things once we get our new bodies, like the following conversation with a girl in a wheelchair I met at a conference. Since we've been sitting here talking about heaven, I said, would you like to make a date to get together up there? The girl sitting twisted and humped over gave me a funny look and asked, and do what? What would you like to do? Uh, I'd like to be able to knit, she said hesitantly. Then let's make a date to meet in a cabin, pull up a couple of rocking chairs by the fireplace, and reach for our knitting needles, okay? My friend in the wheelchair scoffed. You're just saying that. Heaven's not going to have cabins and rocking chairs. That stuff's only on earth. I looked at her in all seriousness and said, I believe heaven will. Heaven is by no means ambiguous. Isaiah 65 verse 17 says that God is planning new heavens and a new earth. Did you get that? Heaven has our planet in it, a new earth with earthly things in it. Nothing clunky, no gawky images, just warm and wonderful things that made earth, earth. How can you be so sure of what the new earth will be like? Because I don't think God is going to switch dictionaries on us and suddenly redefine what earth is. If there are streets, rivers, trees, and mountains in the new earth, like the Bible says there will be, then why not all the other good things? Why not rocking chairs? She sat looking at me with a wry smile, and then her skepticism vanished. She started deliberating of which sweater pattern to use. (laughs) She learned what most people discover after spending a few minutes talking to me. I take heaven seriously. I take it as seriously as do children. One morning, while I was waiting in an airport, I told my five-year-old friend Matthew Fenlison and his little brother Stephen to grab hold of the arm of my wheelchair and come with me to look for some kids with whom we could play. We found a couple of little boys sitting with their parents in the waiting area, and I asked if they would like to play a game with us. Within minutes, in the open area of the airport lounge, we started a game of Duck Duck Goose. When Matthew tagged me goose, I raced in my wheelchair around the circle of children, but I couldn't catch them. Feeling badly that I wasn't able to get up and run, he whispered, don't worry, Johnny. When we get to heaven, your legs will work, and we'll be able to really play duck, duck, goose. He meant it, and so did I. Rana LaBelle and I plan to climb the mountains behind the Rose Bowl. Thad Mansaker and I, both quads, will ski the Sierras. My sisters, Linda, Kathy, Jay, and I are going to play double tennis. Michael Lynch plans to teach me how to dance 
the Paso Doble, and my husband Ken has already said, I don't mind who fills up your dance card in heaven, but save the last dance for me. I have a whole circle of Romanian orphans. I want to take picnicking on the Hungarian plains, and I can't wait to put my friend Judy Butler on a really fast horse and go racing across Windsor Great Park. Horses in heaven? Yes. I think animals are some of God's best and most avant-garde ideas. Why would he throw out his greatest creative achievements? I'm not talking about my pet schnauzer, Scrappy, dying and going to heaven. Ecclesiastes 3.21 puts the brakes on that thought. I'm talking about new animals fit for a new order of things. Isaiah foresaw lions and lambs lying down together as well as bears, cows, and cobras. And John foresaw the saints galloping on white horses. I have no idea where they'll fit, but I'm certain they will populate part of the new heavens and new earth. Again, underline that word earth. It just wouldn't be earth without animals. So, if you want to go horseback riding, meet Judy and me at the statue of the copper horse at the end of the bridle path in Windsor. Now, folks, these are the kinds of wonderful things that we can look forward to in heaven. If you know Christ, in fact, I was thinking about this, I wouldn't be surprised if when I arrive in heaven, I wouldn't be surprised if my granddaughter Lila introduces me to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones one of my heroes. And he says something like this, I've been waiting for you, Steve. Your granddaughter has told me quite a bit about you. So let's spend the afternoon together talking, just you and me. Wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Now, you can laugh at what I'm about to say next, but I wouldn't be shocked if, yes, there's baseball in heaven. (laughs) Or, or... And I'm not kidding about this, or any other sport that we enjoy now here on earth. After all, it's not sports, it's not athletics that are sinful in and of themselves. It's only our sinful responses to them that's wrong. And in heaven, there won't be any sinful responses. So I'm hoping to have a catch with some of you in glory and breaking off the curveball of my life. Now, I realize that it is very possible that someone here or watching this is listening to all of this and may think that all this talk about heaven being so similar to earth, it's it's just worldly. It's just sinful. But it's really not. Not at all. You see, when the Bible tells us to love not the world nor the things of the world, it's referring to loving the sinful things of this world, those things that are under the evil system, the domain of Satan. It's evil society, what he's talking about. But to enjoy the pleasantries of earth, those blessings from God that in and of themselves are not sinful, it isn't wrong. It's not worldly at all. Listen, if you enjoy wholesome music now, then why wouldn't you enjoy it in the new earth? By new earth, I mean heaven. If you enjoy a bike ride now, why wouldn't you enjoy it in the new earth. If you enjoy working in your garden, reading a good book, savoring a tasty cup of coffee now, then why wouldn't you enjoy it in the new earth? Listen, you aren't being unspiritual. You're not being sinful if you enjoy those things now. So why would it be unspiritual and sinful to think about enjoying those things in heaven? Listen to me. In reality, it's a form of fake 
pseudo-spirituality that insists that enjoying these earthly pleasures, well, that's just sinful. That the only appropriate things we can do now are related to church, Bible studies, and witnessing. My friends, that's pseudo-spirituality if that's what you think or you've been told. That you can't have small talk about sport. You can't discuss this thing or that thing. That's wrong. That's wrong. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And it was Paul who in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, those are fairly mundane things to eat or drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it isn't wrong to enjoy the non-sinful things of this world as long as we keep them in perspective and don't make idols of them. That's the issue. Once again, I want you to listen to Randy Alcorn as he explains how the things you enjoy now on earth are but a foretaste. A foretaste of things to come in heaven. He writes, we get tired of ourselves, of others, of sin and suffering and crime and death. Yet we love the earth, don't we? I love the spaciousness of the night sky over the desert. I love the coziness of sitting next to Nancy on the couch in front of the fireplace, blanket over us, and dogs snuggle next to us. These experiences are not heaven, but they are a foretaste of heaven. What we love about this life are the things that resonate with the life we were made for. The things we love are not merely the best this life has to offer. They are previews of the greater life to come. Folks, the reason the life to come will be greater is because, yes, there will be familiarity when heaven comes to earth, but some things will be so wonderfully different and better, better than what we now experience on earth. And as you look again at Revelation 21, John tells us what will be different and what will be better. Verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is amongst men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now what we read here is this. As John is looking at this gorgeous city that has descended from heaven to earth, he hears a voice announcing that God will dwell with his people in the new Jerusalem. Now, as you'll recall, when we think about God dwelling with his people, in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people, Israel, first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And today, he dwells in the bodies of believers in Christ. However, in eternity... God will dwell among his people without any building containing his glory. And we know this because that's what we read later in Revelation 21, verse 22. Look at Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You see, when heaven comes to earth, God will no longer be veiled in anything. We will see God in all of the fullness of his glory. Christ as well, because he is God. This is precisely what Jesus was referring to when he said in the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As John MacArthur explains in his study Bible notes, he writes, There is no need for a temple in the eternal state, since God himself will be the temple in which everything exists. The presence of God literally fills the entire new heaven and new earth. Going to heaven will be entering the limitless presence of the Lord. Listen, as wonderful as it will be to continue in heaven enjoying many of the things that once made life on earth so pleasant, God's presence will be the most exciting and wonderful thing about heaven. As one Bible teacher so aptly put it, he said, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. A longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. Amen. And because God's full presence, full presence will be there for us to see, it means that unlike our present experiences on earth, in the new earth... Sin will no longer be present at all. And therefore, the effects of sin will be gone as well. As John tells us in verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In heaven, there will no longer be any tears, meaning there'll no longer be any sorrow. That's not true today. Today we experience tears, tears of hurt feelings, tears of loved ones being taken from us, tears of tragedy, tears of rejection, tears over our sins, over our failures. But in heaven, all of that ends because God will personally wipe all of those tears from our eyes. And no longer will there be any death because death was caused by sin. And in heaven, there'll be no sin, so no death. How precious is that? A world without the anguish, the heartache, the sorrow of death. Our last enemy will finally be gone forever. And because death won't exist in heaven, verse 4 tells us that those things that death causes will be gone too. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. No mourning. No crying. No more pain over losing a loved one. My friends, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, then this is your future. This is what you have to look forward to. And you should look forward to it with tremendous joy, tremendous eagerness, tremendous anticipation. In a world filled with trials, sadness, tears, disappointments, heartaches today, Heaven will have none of those things. Now, I realize you may have been a bit surprised by what you've heard this morning concerning heaven because you've never realized how similar it will be to what you enjoy today on earth, only without sin and with the fullness of God's presence. And just in case Satan whispers in your heart, don't believe a word that this preacher has been telling you about heaven. He's wrong. What he's been telling you is just too good to be true. If that 
what he whispers to you or thoughts like that, then you need to read the very next verse in Revelation 21 verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. I look at this and I say, Well, it may very well be that when the Apostle John was given this incredible vision of heaven, that he was so stunned by what he saw that it may very well be that John just stopped writing things down. I mean, he's supposed to write it down. It's called the Revelation. Write down the Revelation. But he may have just stopped writing things down so that the Lord had to say to him, write, for these things are faithful and true. In other words, John, pick up your pen. Keep writing. Because these wonderful things about heaven are all true. They're not fantasy. That's exactly what you and I need to hear. God is faithful to keep his promises and he has promised to give us the most wonderful future in heaven and it's all been made possible because Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago who loved us also laid down his life for us paying for our sins on his cross so that we wouldn't have to be judged for our sins and spend eternity in hell instead we are forgiven And Christ's righteousness has been placed on our account. Righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. Christ's righteousness on our account so that God has made us fit for heaven. But if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior from sin, then you are not. Sadly, you are not fit for heaven since you still have unforgiven sins on your record and only unrighteousness on your record. So before it's too late, before you pass into eternity, I urge you to do the thing I urge every week. Repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, falling upon his mercy and grace to save you as you place your trust in him alone for your salvation. I urge you to do that. That'd be the best way to start the new year out. That'd be the best way to start the rest of eternity out for you. So if you'd like to talk to one of our pastors about how you can be certain that when you die, you'll go to heaven, then just see me as we close the service now. Our Father, we thank you for what we've been able to study. Thank you that your word is not unclear about these things. Yes, there still are questions we have, but you have given us such revelation as to know that there is continuity and familiarity in heaven. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never really thought about this, that there'll be a joy, a new joy that will fill their heart about heaven, that it will be so real to them. As Johnny said, that she takes heaven so seriously, I pray that all of us will, that we'll be resolved to live for your glory, knowing that this is what you have secured for us by your death on the cross. And I pray that you will help us to have even more of an evangelistic passion to share the gospel with others so that others can go to heaven. And I pray for any here, Lord, or watching or listening who may not have ever trusted you as Savior, as Lord. I pray that you'll open their hearts to the gospel, draw them to yourself, help them to see their sinful condition and what Christ has done on the cross. And may you draw them to come to you, Lord and place their trust in you alone for salvation. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.